We're turning tonight, if you have your Bible, to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. We've been studying a good bit in recent messages about Elijah. And we come to chapter 17 and verse 17 this evening. We'll begin reading there. 1 Kings 17, verse 17. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. Let's look to the Lord in, in prayer once again. Father, we thank you that we can open this book and we can read the thoughts of your heart. We thank you that you have recorded the very words that we need to have all that pertains unto life and godliness. And if we will take advantage of it, if we will study this book, if we will get alone with you each day and pour over these pages and, and pray and ask for your wisdom, you will show us, you will teach us, you will guide us to think the same way you do about all of life's issues. We thank you, Father, for that, for that precious promise. And we pray that you'll help us to take full advantage of it, not to be so busy and so full of our own uh, plans and purposes that we forget to spend that time with you. Help us to commune with you as we meditate on the things we've read throughout the day, to think about your, your interest in the lives of those around us and your purpose in our own life as well. We pray you'll strengthen us, Lord, as we do these things, that as we look into this word tonight, your spirit would take the things of Christ and, and show them unto us and help us to see why you put this in the book and what it means and why it matters to us tonight. We ask you to strengthen us. We pray that you'll help each family. We know a number are under the weather. We pray, Father, that you will heal and, and help in each of these cases where we have uh, adults and children who have been sick. And we ask you, Lord, to give strength. We know that you're the one who is the, the divine physician. You know the needs of these bodies of ours and how something as small as a microscopic virus can just knock us right out. But we pray, Father, that you will move in mighty power to strengthen your people, the students and staff of the school and each of the members of the church here. Help us, Lord, to have the, the health to do the work you've set before us to do. We know that if we have health and strength, it's only your mercy and grace that, that sends it along. We don't deserve it, but we thank you for it, and we pray that we might have it. We ask for your help and for your wisdom, for your blessing. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 
We've been thinking about what the Bible records about the life of Elijah. And in, in recent messages, we've looked at how he stood up in front of King Ahab and gave him this sad news, but this important news, that there would be a drought and there would not be any rain given, not any rain given until the Lord sent it. And this drought turned out to last several years, and it caused a great famine in Israel. But God sent this judgment because he had sent his prophets to teach the people that they needed to turn back to him, to turn away from their sinful ways and their worship of false idols, and come back to the, the worship of the one true God. They still had a temple in Jerusalem, and they still had some religious activity, but they also were worshiping false idols brought in from the heathen nations around them. And they were, they were trying to have it both ways, to be called the people of God, and yet at the same time to worship the things of this world. And, uh, and that's not unfamiliar to us. We have the same problem. We tend to drift away from the Lord. We tend to love our own way and to get caught up with the things of this world to the exclusion of the Lord who called us to himself. And so Elijah spoke to King Ahab and he said, he said to him, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And then Elijah was told to go hide himself by the brook Cherith. And he went there. He went there and the, the Lord sent uh, ravens to feed him morning and evening. And he had the water of the brook to drink, but he was all alone there. But God was using that in his life and in the life of the nation. He just took Elijah aside. He kept him away in this place by the brook Cherith. And he did it to teach Elijah some lessons about himself and about the Lord's purpose. Elijah uh, was there for a while, but then we read in verse 7, that it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up. And uh, Elijah has to enter into the, the famine and, in, and enter into the, the drought that everyone else in Israel was, was, uh, was experiencing. The brook that he had depended on dried up. And the Lord said, I have a new plan for you. Here's what I want you to do. Verse 8, the word of the Lord came unto him again, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. And we, we remarked on that, that Zidon was the same place that Queen Jezebel was from. So the, the Lord was taking him out of Israel's territory and putting him into the territory of the very woman who wanted to put him to death. The very woman who had brought Baal worship into the nation of Israel by her union with King Ahab. And uh, she was definitely an enemy of the truth and an enemy of anybody who stood up for the truth. But that's exactly where the Lord told him to go, to go right into the enemy territory. And he said, there's a widow woman there, and I've commanded her to sustain thee. It's kind of interesting when you look over in the New Testament where the Lord Jesus talks about this very incident, this very incident of how Elijah was sent to this woman. And the Lord puts it in the context of, in Luke chapter 4, of, of, of uh, Elijah going to help this woman. The Lord says about it that there were many widows in Israel, many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, but, un, but unto none of them was he sent, but unto this widow, a widow who was a Gentile, a widow who was not part of Israel. And of course that made the people extremely angry. And it was, that's the incident where they wanted to take him to the brow of the hill, where their city was on the hill, and throw him off. That's how they felt about this because he said this Gentile woman got the advantage over all of the people of Israel. She got Elijah to come there. And because he came there, she was fed miraculously while other people in Israel were starving to death. And no doubt many of them did die during that famine. 
And they, that made them angry because the Jews who heard that word in the synagogue from the Lord Jesus Christ thought that they were the special people of God and that Gentiles were nothing and they didn't count. And yet God had a word for them. And that was the Lord went to the people who would hear him, those who would receive him, those who would believe. That's where he's going. And that happened to be the Gentiles. Anyway, those, it's interesting to see that comparing those two things, what the Lord said about it and what we read here. Here it says, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. You're going, I've commanded her to sustain you, Elijah. But in the New Testament, it seems like the Lord's saying from the other angle, uh, I've, I've sent her to sustain you. Uh, I mean, you to sustain her. So both ways. The Lord was working in both lives there. And so this widow woman, uh, when, when Elijah heard this, no doubt he thought, you know, this, is, this doesn't make any sense. You're sending me into enemy territory to live in a place where uh, no doubt people want to kill me. And, and not only that, but you're sending me to a widow woman who probably doesn't have any means to help me. And then he gets there and he finds out it's worse than that. It's worse than that. Not only is she a widow woman, but she's out there picking up sticks to make a fire to make their last meal for she and her son. And they're going to die. I mean, she said, this is all we have. This is the end. We're going to use this little bit of meal that we have and this little bit of oil and these sticks. We're going to make one more meal and we're going to die. And that's, that's so I'm sure Elijah, it crossed his mind, I'm sure, that uh, this doesn't look so good for me because how is this woman going to take care of us or me? How, how is this going to work, Lord? And yet the Lord had a plan in it. And the Lord put it into Elijah's heart to say unto her, verse 13, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first and bring it unto me. And after make for thee and for thy son. So her faith was tested here. Her faith was tested here. Would she believe the, the word of the man of God? Would she believe this, this man who came all the way from Israel? I think she could probably tell right away where he was from because the dress was different and the look of the person was different. And she knew that this was someone from Israel. And she, she, she knew that this was an unusual thing, that someone from over in Israel would be showing up over in Zidon. And so uh, she, she exercised some faith in what he said to do. And she went and did what he said to do. And he said in verse 14, For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither the cruise of oil fail, till the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. We thought about that a good bit in a previous message and talked about how the Lord can sustain us miraculously. And he did it through these circumstances that didn't seem at all appealing or at all helpful or at all uh, able to be uh, you know, considered a, a strengthening environment. And yet, and yet the barrel of meal shall not waste. Neither shall the cruise of oil fail till the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. That's the promise that he gave to her. And she acted on that. Verse 15, she went and did according to the saying of Elijah. And she and he and her house did eat many days. Many days. And uh, we read in verse 16, the barrel of meal wasted not. Neither, neither did the cruise of oil fail according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. So she accepted the word. From God through Elijah, she accepted that word and she acted on that word and God blessed her. Blessed she and her household with bread to eat for a long, long time. Well, this was a great, a great miracle and, uh, and, a, and a great blessing. And no doubt a, a wonderful thing for Elijah and for this woman, for her son, for her household. It was a blessing, tremendous blessing. But notice what we read in verse 17. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. 
This is not a good turn of events from the perspective of the widow or from the perspective of Elijah. But we need to understand something. And this, these two verses, comparing 16 and 17, bring it out. On the one hand, verse 16, we have the unfailing sustenance that the Lord had provided, the unfailing blessing that would continue day after day and provide their needs. And then in verse 17, we see the death of a precious child. Well, these two things laid side by side bring up the fact that life is like that, isn't it? Life is like that. We have times when we feel especially close to the Lord. We have blessings, and we're thankful for those blessings. And then along come trials, but those trials are also essential to our Christian life. The Lord uses those trials to teach us, just as he did Elijah and this widow, what they need to understand. And the Lord used that in their lives, and the Lord uses that in our lives. You know, we have the smile of the Lord, as it were, on our life many times. But that does not mean that we won't have afflictions. Just because we have the smile of God on our life does not mean that we won't experience these troubles. It's a, it, it was an error on the part of the widow to conclude that the death of her son meant the end of God's favor. It did not. Just because something bad has happened doesn't mean that the Lord is not going to have favor on you. Uh, that, and somehow it's just a sign of his wrath and judgment upon you. That's not always the case. You can have affliction even on the path of obedience. You're walking with the Lord. You're surrendered to God. You're serving him. You're studying his word. You're believing God. You're enjoying fellowship with the Lord and his word. And you're, you're ministering to the people around you. And along comes this tremendous trial. In this case, the death of a precious son. Uh, that's, that's a hard case. That's a hard case. And these things come along and it makes us wonder, is the Lord really in all this? Have I really been serving him? Is, he, is this his anger against me? Is this his, is this his indication that my life is not at right like it should be? But we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised by the fiery trial which is to try us as though some strange thing happened unto us. Think about the people whose lives are recorded in detail in the word of God. Think about Joseph. Did he have any afflictions along the path of obedience? Sure he did. How about Daniel? <laughs> How about Daniel? He had some afflictions along the path of obedience. How about the apostles? Uh, the New Testament apostles who went out preaching and teaching the word. Did they have any afflictions along the path of obedience? And what about the Lord himself? What about the Lord himself? Did he have any afflictions on the path of obedience? He sure did, didn't he? He sure did. He sure did. And so will we. Uh, but you know the Lord often gives special uh, indications of his favor before those trials come. I've noticed that in my own life. As, as I think about the different things that I have been through, the things that the Lord's brought into my life, I can see that there were times of rejoicing in the Lord and closeness with him. And they preceded times of great difficulty. The Lord sets it up that way so that we can be assured of his confidence in us and his, his, his work in us and his using us. And, and we know that that's happening. Uh, and that happens sometimes right before some big trial comes into the life. And it's not because, it's often not because uh, of, of, of disobedience. It's just part of God's school. It's part of his working to help us learn what we need to learn. And he prepares us sometimes ahead of time for that, for that with a, a special time of blessing. But growing in grace requires development 
in the fire. It requires development in the fire. Look with me, if you will, at Malachi chapter 3 for just a moment. I see a verse there that has often stood out to me about the Lord's working. Malachi chapter 3. And verse 3. It's describing the Lord himself. Malachi 3.3. And it says, He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. So the sons of Levi are the people of God. People chosen by God to serve him in the work. And that's you and I. We can apply this to ourselves. And the Lord says that they need to be purged. There's something in them that needs purging out. And the Lord's going to purge it out just like you would with gold and silver. When gold and silver is mined out of the ground, it's not ready to be used in, in, a, in a work of art or a piece of jewelry. The gold and silver is mixed with ore, and it has to be separated from that ore. It has to be, it has to be put in the fire, and in the fire it's separated from its impurities. The gold and silver are heavier, and they sink to the bottom, and the impurities rise to the top, and the refiner and purifier pulls those off the top. And continues to do that process until that gold is just as pure as, the, as it can be made. And that's what the Lord does in our life. He sits as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he purifies the sons that he has brought into his kingdom. He purges them as gold and silver that they may, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. So the Lord does that. And that's what trials are about. That's what difficulties are about. They're purging us of the dross so that we can be gold and silver for God. How severe was this trial that had come upon these people? Going back to 1 Kings 17 and verse 17. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. As we read through this passage, it's clear that the son died. He died because we read later that his soul was out of his body and the Lord called his soul back to his body when Elijah prayed. So he was actually dead. This son was dead. And, and not only was this an only child, but this was the son upon whom this widow was depending for sustenance. He was going to take care of his mother. He was going to be the one who would help her since she had no husband. And in, in these Bible times, widows were often penniless. They're often without any kind, of, uh, any kind of income or any kind of sustenance unless someone in their family helped them. And so this son would have been someone that she depended upon, but not only for her income, uh, if he could go out and work and earn money to help with the household expenses, uh, not only that, but also to continue the name of her family in Israel. That was very important, very important. And the, the women wanted sons so that the son would continue the name of the family and that tribe of Israel would be built up and that name would continue on. And, uh, and of course, this was the end of that because her husband was dead and this child was dead as well. And so she, she had a reaction to this trial, much like our reaction to the trials the Lord sends us. She said unto Elijah, verse 18, What have I to do with thee, thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and slay my son? This is a mixture of two things. It's a mixture of acknowledgement of who Elijah was. She says, 
O thou man of God. She acknowledged that he was a man sent from God. But now she's complaining about that because she thinks that that man of God has come just to tell her about her sin and call her sin to remembrance and to slay her son. That God was in this and Elijah had been sent to deliver this tremendous uh, uh, trial into her life by killing her son. That somehow he was responsible for this. And, and God had brought this into her, her life through this. And so it's a complaint, but it's also got an element of, of, of recognition. She calls him a man of God. She knows where he's coming from, but she doesn't like the message. But you know, death, death always, death always brings about a remembrance of sin. And that's because the wages of sin is death. We read that in the New Testament. The wages of sin is death. And, and whenever death occurs, it should cause us to think about our relationship to the Lord. Every time someone close to us dies, every time we go through that experience, it ought to remind us personally of why that happens. Why do people die? Why do they leave this world? It's not because of sickness, ultimately. It's not because of accident or injury. It's not because of old age. It's because the wages of sin is death. And every one of us is going to die barring the Lord's return and the rapture of the church. We're going to leave this world. I mean, we're going to leave it. The physical death will occur because sin is in the world. That's what the Bible teaches. Before there was sin, there was no death. Adam and Eve could have lived forever in fellowship with the Lord. But they sinned against God. And so death came into the world. Death came into the world by one man. And that was Adam. He brought it in and it's passed upon all men, the book of Romans tells us, for that all have sinned. And so this, this death that occurs here, this precious son that died, brings about the remembrance of this woman's sin. She thinks about her own sin. Why is this happening in my life? And we often, we often do the very same thing. There's some elements of this attitude that we might consider. First of all, there's resentment toward God's appointed servant or messenger or prophet. And this is the word of God coming through this man. But we have the same thing. We don't have prophets like Old Testament prophets. But we have those who bring the word of God to us. Whether it's in a meeting like this or, 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 in, or from Christian to Christian. People bring the word of God to us in private and in public. And we can begin to resent God's word. We can begin to resent it even though we know it's God's word. We can begin to resent what we're hearing because it's reminding us, death is reminding us of our own sin and of our own failures and our, of our own shortcomings. All of that is brought about by this word from God right here. And we can do another thing besides resentment. We can begin to blame others instead of humbly seeking the Lord's face. We can begin to blame others. That's what she did. She said, Oh, thou man of God. In other words, you, you are the problem. What, do I have, what have I to do with you? What, what have I done that displeases you? What have I done that's causing you to bring this judgment into my life and remind me of my sin and take the life of my son? Blaming others instead of humbly seeking the Lord's face. When the Lord begins to put his finger on things in our life and remind us of our sin and our need of him, we often want to turn and look around and say, well, I'm, that person over there is really, really messed up. I might have some problems, but they're really messed up. And, you know, and we begin to look around and see that the people around us somehow are, are, uh, are, are in a lot worse shape. And, uh, and, and uh, we want to avoid the finger of God upon our own life. 
But another thing that happens besides resentment toward the Word of God and blaming others is neglecting prayer. We begin to stop praying. If you want a, a barometer on your spiritual life, then look at prayer. I'm not talking about prayer in public meetings where everyone can hear you and everyone can see you and you can, you've obviously prayed. I'm talking about that private prayer, that place where we get with the Lord and we get serious with God about what's going on in our life and we open his book and we pray over the things we read there. We ask the Lord to help us and to help others. That prayer life right there tells you something about your walk with God. That means more than all of the busy activities you might be involved in. So, well, Lord, I do this, and Lord, I do that. And I'm involved in these 18 other things over here. And I work from sun, sun up to sundown and into the night, and I do so much. The Lord says, you ought to do what you can do in service for the Lord. But it begins with a relationship with God in that private place. If we don't get with the Lord, we're not going to be led by the Lord and we're going to be doing all kinds of things maybe, maybe good things, but, but not the way the Lord wants them done. We can get into, those, into that attitude of heart where we think, well, I'm doing, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I don't have time to get with the Lord and spend that time with Him. Uh, we don't say it like that, but that's what happens. And we neglect prayer. This woman could have asked, instead of accusing Elijah, she could have asked Elijah to pray for her and help her understand this word from God. She could have asked for that, but instead she begins to blame him. Another thing about our attitude toward trials is our reactions reveal our true spiritual condition. It's not our actions. We plan to do things and we do them. But our reactions, when somebody says something to us that maybe is a little bit offensive or when somebody does something that we think that they shouldn't do and it's, it's caught us off guard, that's when we find out whether we're walking with God or not. What about our reactions? Are our reactions loving, concerned for the people around us, being willing to take, you know, take the abuse if somebody is trying to dish it out and just, just go ahead and let them do what they need to do and then love them instead? Instead, love them for the Lord uh, instead of uh, reacting the wrong way. We can't, you can't gin that up. You can't, you can't create that on the spot. If you haven't been walking with God in private, it's not going to happen in public. And the reactions prove it. The reactions prove it. Think about your reactions. We've already been through a few days this week. Just think about this particular week and, and, and conversations you've had with people or situations that you've had and how it takes just the tiniest little thing to set us off. Have, have you learned that about yourself? The tiniest little thing. And should it be that way? It should not be that way. There should be something better going on. There should be an attitude of walking with the Lord that causes us to see people the way he sees them and to realize that we're not the ones who need to defend ourselves and set everybody straight and get everything working the way it needs to go. We all have that tendency. But what we need to be doing is doing the will of God. And the will of God many times is just to pray for the people that are coming at us with those things. And just to, just to say a kind word, a soft answer, turneth away wrath so many times. Instead of blowing up, we need to be praying up. And we need to be ready for the day. Things don't work out well when we don't. So, so in, in, these, in these times of trials, what's our reaction to these things? This, this response of the woman was kind of a mixture of faith and unbelief. 
mixed together. That's what you see there in verse 18. She knew that this was a man of God. She knew he had a word from God. But she did not like the effect of it all when it took away the life of her son. That, that did not work out. But you find out uh, in trials uh, what our real attitude of heart is. And it separates those who believe God from those who don't. Trials separate those who believe God from those who don't. Because the unbeliever, the heart that's filled with unbelief says, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve what's happening. I'm no worse than anyone else. Why should this happen to me? That's the, that's the heart of unbelief and pride. But the heart of belief and humility says, I know that there are problems with me. And I know that I have lots of sin. That I sin in ways every day that I shouldn't. I know that's true of me. I'm ready to believe that I have displeased the Lord. That something is wrong and I need to examine myself. And I'm willing to scrutinize my behavior and confess and forsake sin in any form. Any form that the Lord might, might show it to me. Whenever there's death like the death of this son, the subject of sin comes up. And whenever there are trials, hard trials in our life, it's a time to get alone with God and confess what we are and let him speak to our hearts about it. Calling our sins to mind is good for us. It produces results. It, it works meekness in us. It works a submissive attitude to the Lord. It works patience. It works a resignation regarding the will of God. We're resigned to do whatever he wants us to do in whatever way he might direct. Calling our sins to mind helps us have that right attitude toward God. Uh, when uh, we read in Leviticus chapter 10 when Aaron's sons were killed because of their uh, false attempts at worship that were not of God. Uh, uh, Aaron did not want to eat the sin, the sin offering as he was supposed to. And Moses was, was angry with him. And he said, this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to eat the sin offering. It was, it, and, uh, and he told him, uh, he told him that, uh, he told him, why didn't you, he said what to him, why didn't you do what I, what I commanded to do. Why didn't you do what I commanded to do? And I think it's instructive in that passage uh, how it's said just that way. You didn't do what I commanded you to do. Not the Lord commanded you, but I commanded. It was from the Lord. The Lord told Moses to command the people to do the sin offering a certain way. But in this case, in this case, Moses is not saying the Lord was... Uh, offended, he was saying, "You're saying I told you to do this," but Aaron said, "Look, uh, my sons have just been killed because of their disobedience. So I've, I see in my own life my own failure because of what's happened to them." Aaron was saying, I, "I see that in my own life, and I could not, in good conscience, eat of that sin offering." He's Aaron says. Would the Lord have accepted that? And the Bible records Moses' response. He says he held his peace. He held his peace. In other words, he, he could see that in Aaron's life there was a tenderness toward the truth. 
And he could see that the Lord was using the situation to convict Aaron and show him uh, his failure in this regard to keep his sons going in the right direction. And the result was the death of these two boys. But the Lord was working in all of that. And the fact that Aaron did not, did not feel that he could eat that sin offering was, was okay. It was okay. And Moses held his peace. Anyway, trials cause us to call our sins to remembrance. Think about Eli in 1 Samuel. Eli's sons were wicked, and Eli did not correct them. And the Lord took their lives. And Eli said of that, it is the Lord. When he heard about it, he said, it is the Lord. It is the Lord in, in 1 Samuel 3.18. So he, he became resigned to what God was doing because he could see God's hand even in the midst of the death of his sons. And then David. We think about David in 2 Samuel 12. Uh, David was experiencing loss, the loss of a child. And as a direct result of his disobedience, God said that child that was born unto you will die. But David could write in spite of that in Psalm 119, in faithfulness, in faithfulness the Lord has afflicted me. In faithfulness. And so at least after the trial was over, David could say that the Lord was faithful in it. That it brought about an understanding of his sin and how serious it was. And even though he prayed for the child and the child did not recover, David could say, in faithfulness, God afflicted me. Psalm 119 and verse 75. There are mistakes made often in the midst of trials. And this is a big one. We acknowledge God. We know the Lord's in charge of everything and he sent what's going on. But then we turn around and blame the wrong person or thing for the trial. Instead of examining ourselves, we point to somebody else. And that's what this woman did in 1 Kings 17. She pointed to Elijah. She said, ah, you're the problem, you man of God. You're the problem. You came here and you've been, you've been feeding us. She kind of, you know, let all that go. You, you've been... Uh, you have brought this miracle and this uh, food and we've been eating this food and it's been sustaining our family all this time. But now when my son is dead, you must be the problem. You must be the problem. And we're so like that. We want to uh, want our point a finger at other people and say that, well, it's their, it's their disobedience that's causing me to be, to be out of sorts. And this trial that's in my life, it's somebody else's fault. If other people would just do what I think they ought to do, then everything would be wonderful. But uh, that, as you know, that's a, that's part of a hollow, a hollow view, isn't it? If everybody did what I thought was they ought to do, then uh, the world would be worse off than it is now. That's the way we need to think about that. But faith in God and Elijah's intercession for this woman bore fruit. The God of the barrel and the cruise could deliver from death, and that's the wonderful miracle that's in this chapter, verse nineteen. And he said unto her, give me thy son. If she did not have faith in God, she never would have turned over the body of her dead son to this man. She accused him of causing the problem. And she thought that the Lord had sent him to slay her son. But she had, she had faith because she was willing to give her son to this man. Now Elijah could have been really offended. Could have said, don't you know who I am? I'm a prophet of God. I didn't come here to slay your son. But he wasn't. He just gave this soft answer, give me thy son. 
We need to hear that word. We need to hear that word. We all have relatives, maybe even among our own children, our grandchildren, people that we want to see changed because we can see in their life evidence that they are dead in trespasses and sins. They don't know God. They never trusted him as their savior. And though they may be religious in some ways, they don't seem to be truly saved. And the Lord says to us what he said to her, give me thy son. Give me thy son. Are we willing to turn over those people that we're so fond of, people that we care about so much, turn them over to the Lord and let the Lord do what he wants to do with them? Are we trying to make it happen on our own? Are we trying to prevent them from having any kind of trials by, you know, maybe supporting them in ways we shouldn't be sometimes or trying to keep them from any kind of danger or keep them from any kind of trouble or difficult circumstance or trial uh, and, uh, and actually preventing the Lord's working in their life? We need to turn them over to the Lord. I don't mean run them off. I mean let the Lord do what he's trying to do in their life. And when they do have trials, don't try, to, don't try to end every trial by fixing what's going on in their life. Point them to the Lord. Point them to the Lord and say, have you prayed about it? Have you sought God about it? You need to do that. You know, it's so, so much a natural tendency to, to just step in and try to, try to fix things and try to make it better and try to do away with any problems that people that we care about are going through. We need to realize that the Lord is the one who's at work. And we need to let him work. We need to allow him to do what he's trying to do with those people that we're praying for. So how do we, how do we, give, how do we give him our son? How do we give them to the Lord? Same way Elijah did. As she exercised faith and gave him this, the body of her son, and he took him out of her bosom, carried him up into a loft where he abode, and laid him upon his own bed. So he took him into a private place. He took him into a place where he had been staying, I guess a room that was available for him to use as he lived here with this widow in her home. So he took him to this private place, out of sight of the, the rest of the world. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord. So what is this telling us? It's telling us that we can take that child of ours, we can take that relative of ours, we can take that person we're especially trying to minister to, we can take them alone in our mind to the Lord in private. And we can do what Elijah did. We can stretch ourselves upon them. And what did he do? What does that mean? It means identifying personally with them. Caring enough about that person to take them before the Lord and to pray, not just once or twice, three times, that means over and over again. Stretching ourselves upon that person, trying to think about what they're, they're thinking, what they're going through, what they're struggling with, and why they have not trusted the Lord. Identifying with them in every way that we can. Have we ever done that? Have we ever taken that time to do that for anyone? We're so, so filled with ourselves, aren't we? The only thing we can pray about is, Lord, I need this. And Lord, this hurts. And Lord, I need to pay this bill. And Lord, what about me? And, and the people that, that we're trying to help, the people that we want to help, we haven't done anything really in that prayer life for them. Elijah stretched himself three times upon this child. He identified personally with him. And he, as, as it were, he wanted, he wanted the life of his own body to go back into this child somehow. He thought if he got close to him and prayed that the Lord would be able to put life back into this, this child. 
Well, that's a miracle. You need to understand that even though there are several places in the Bible where people are raised from the dead, this is the first one. That had never happened. That had never happened anywhere in the recorded history of the Word of God. Nowhere, anywhere. And he was praying for something that had never happened. Praying for something that had never happened. Can we pray for people that look like they're sold out for the devil, sold out for this world, and unwilling to believe God? Can we pray for them like he prayed for this boy? Can we pray for them like that? Well, no wonder. No wonder we don't see much fruit in our efforts to help people if we're not praying like this. He took him into a private place. He took him into a private place and he prayed for him. He cried unto the Lord. We read that here several times. Verse 20, uh, he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times, and he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord answered the prayer. Notice verse 22, And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again. That's how we know he was really dead. And he revived. The Lord answered this prayer and brought life into this child. Now, does the fact that we pray for somebody make them get saved? Of course not, because everyone has that free will and they must choose the Lord. But if we're not praying like this, it's no wonder we don't see any fruit like this. We need to ask, I mean, the Lord's going to help people come to understand their need of Him, whether we pray or not. But if we want to be used by God as part of that process, we've got to pray like this. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah. Does He ever hear our voice? For, for, the, for another person like this. And the soul of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. Can you imagine the joy of a mom who has a dead son to get him alive back safely? Can you imagine that? I think you probably can. Because if you have a child who's not saved and they get saved, there's no joy. There's no joy this side of heaven like that. No joy. Delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. Thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. She was strengthened in her faith. It was a tremendous grief to lose her son, but God used it for good. And he built into her a faith that probably could never be overthrown after that. Uh, she had tremendous faith in the word of the Lord. Because she had believed Elijah and given him her son. And now she received him back alive. That's amazing. That's just amazing. There, there's so much here. I don't, wanna, I don't want to keep you too long. And I, I'm not going to. But I wanted to say one other thing here. And that is this. Elijah took the child, brought him down out of the chamber. Elijah's thanking and praising God, no doubt. And the widow's rejoicing to see her son. It reminds me of Luke chapter 7. If you'll turn there with me. Take a look at that. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And we'll see a very similar thing. In the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 7. Look at verse 11. And it came to pass. 
the day after, that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. And when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still. And he said unto the young man, and he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying, The great prophet is risen up among us, that God has visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. And the disciples of John showed him of all these things. Very similar, very similar event in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ where this uh, young man who was dead, he was a widow's son and the only son, and the Lord raised him from the dead. And this was testimony to the fact that this was God come in the flesh who could do this. Only the Lord could do this. And so it was a tremendous testimony of, his, of who he was. And that's why these miracles are in the Bible. They're in there to show us that the Lord is who he says he is. And that like this woman, we can trust the word of the Lord in the mouth of his prophets. We can read the word of God and we can know that every word is true. And that the Lord's going to bring about exactly what he's promised to do. Now by this I know that thou art a man of God. Back in 1 Kings chapter 17, he was introduced to her as a man of God in verse 14. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Elijah declared, saying that he's a prophet of God and he's going to tell what the Lord is saying. So he was introduced as a man of God in verse 14. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail, till the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. He was questioned. The fact that he was a man of God was questioned somewhat in verse 18 when she said, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? But then in verse 24, it was proven so. It was proven so to her, and her faith was increased. The woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God. Thou art a man of God. And the word that you bring is truth. It's truth. Even if it brings my sin to remembrance, it's truth. And that's the message of this story. I wrote, read something that I think summarizes this. A person wrote, Oh, to live in the energy and power of the Holy Spirit, so that those who come in contact with me may perceive the power of God working in and through me. Just as Elijah was able to bring the power of God to bear on this circumstance, the Lord wants to use us to bring the power of God to bear on the circumstances we are in, to help the people that we minister to, and to be a testimony for Him. Will we be raising the dead? I doubt that. It's possible, of course, for the Lord to do that any time. He's the great physician. He can heal anyone. He can restore any life. But we can do all that the Lord would have us do. We can do all that the Lord would have us do if we're yielded to Him. And that's what this is about. Having the power of God to do the will of God. Not to do our will or what we want to see done, but to do the will of God. And that power is found in the place of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for this record of this man who was faithful to you, who was willing to bring your word 
to people who didn't want to hear it. And then to turn to this Gentile woman and to, to others who would hear it and bring it there. We pray, Lord, that we might have that vision. That we might see beyond our circumstances and all the things we do, however important they may seem to us. We pray, Lord, that we might find your will and your way in that place of prayer. Help us to stretch ourselves as, as Elijah did. To care about others enough. To pray over them in a way that's more than just, now I lay me down to sleep. We pray, Father, that you'll help us to have a real relationship with you that makes a difference. So that when we leave our place of prayer in the morning and go out into the day, it'll be with a, a filling of your spirit that will be evident in the life. That people can see the things we do, the way we react, the way we carry ourselves, the desire that we have for others, the, the love that we show. That all of that might point to the Savior who loved them and died for them. We know that you can bring that power. You can give us the power to be and act like and, and have a life that is in line with the Son of God. We pray you'll help us, Father, to understand it and to pour over this book and find how we should live, how we should be carrying ourselves, and how we should pray. We ask that you'll work in each of our hearts to accomplish that, and we're trusting you to do it. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.